This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Hey everyone, this is Z Prime On the Grid brought to you once again in glorious video or audio if that's how you're choosing to consume it. Both formats are great. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me as always is my co-host, Aaron Hardick. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Dylan. It's kind of interesting. Tomorrow, Texas starts to reopen its economy, um, but there has been a lot of government and city tension. I know that Austin um, was not really, the city of Austin was not really happy with the idea of starting to reopen, but uh, Governor Abbott has will be lifting the stay-at-home ban tomorrow, and restaurants and other areas or places that have been closed down will be starting to open again, so it's kind of a, a weird time right now. I mean, fingers crossed that that goes well and everyone stays safe. We're, we're in Washington, are supposed to start our reopening process on Monday, but there's, but I'm hearing rumors that we're going to get an extended stay at home order announcement this weekend. So we'll see. Um, just hope everyone's staying safe out there. Uh, got a, but let's get into the meat of our discussion. Uh, our guest today is the senior vice president of policy and regulatory affairs for e-mobility at Siemens. And he's here to chat with us about EV charging standards and interoperability. Uh, Chris King, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. We had our own, I'm in California, we had our own order extended through the end of May. So we'll see what goes on after that. Are you, how are you doing just in, in general, Chris? You, you staying, you staying in one piece? <laughs> staying safe, getting a lot of work done, spending a lot of time on Zoom calls. <laughs> it could be worse. Definitely know that feeling. Um, so let, let, let's start at the, at the base level. When it, uh, what are some of the big challenges with EV charging infrastructure today? I'm going to talk about standards and interoperability. And before your eyes glaze over, <laughs> it really is the key to opening up the EV market. It's one of the top keys. I mean, you, you guys know from your own surveys that the lack of infrastructure is a real problem. Range anxiety is real. There's another thing called charging anxiety that people don't talk about quite so much, which is, okay, I've found a charger, but can I use it? Can I connect my vehicle? Well, it's a Tesla charger. I don't have a Tesla. Can I pay for it? Am I a member of this network? Or is it even working? Or is somebody occupying it? So we have all these sort of access challenges. It's not like going up to a gas station where you can be confident you're going to be able to use it, pay for it. If there's somebody in line, it's not going to take that long. So we have all of those challenges to work through and standards are a big part of the solution and we'll get into that as we talk. So Chris, um, my co-worker Aaron Otan and I this uh, last June, wow I can't believe it's been almost a full year, we went on a EV Texas road trip where we drove a Tesla about 2,000 miles and a circle around the state of Texas in the course of six days. It was both of our first times driving an EV and both of our first times charging an EV. And we kind of, the first time we had, we had to do it, we pulled up to the charging station. And I looked at her and I was like, wait, I actually don't know how to do this. I mean, we found it to be pretty intuitive, but did come across the challenge of um, different types of plugs. So I, I, for me, 
working in e-mobility, um, that was the first experience I had with um, realizing that there are different types of plugs and it's not um, universally accessible. Some chargers aren't universally accessible for all types of vehicles. So if you go to the DOE website, you'll see that they list three types of chargers. And so you have your level one charger, your level two charger, and your DC fast charger. But those chargers can have different types of plugs. So my question is, what challenges does that create? And how do those in charge of infrastructure ensure the complexities of these challenges aren't passed on to consumers? There are different approaches. And you're right, it's a big problem and solving it is an issue. And this, of course, is why Tesla has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in their network. So if you buy a Tesla, you don't have to worry about this because you know their network is there and you know you can use it. So for the, the other plugs, first of all, if you have a Tesla, you can take an adapter and you, you can use somebody else's charger. That's a J1772, which is used with all the level two chargers out there, except for the Teslas. Now, Europe has come up with a different solution. They've put out a regulation and said, you know, Tesla chargers have to accept J1772. So that issue doesn't exist. Um, you have different charger uh, connectors for the DC fast chargers. There's the CCS and the CHEDEMO. You generally don't have to worry about that because those stations will accept both. So that is a bit of a cost issue. It's a, it's because you have to wear both, but actually using it is not so much of a problem. On, uh, in another area, uh, we talk to transit agencies a lot. And you think about buses and what do they need from a charging perspective. And they have a unique need, uh, which you and I don't have driving our vehicle, but that's if there's an adapter. You know, they've got a depot, that's where they charge their buses most of the time or all the time. Now, if there's a disaster and there's an earthquake or a wildfire or a hurricane and that depot gets damaged, or maybe the electrical power gets uh, cut off to it, if they're not using a standard adapter, they can't go to somebody else's depot and use that depot for charging. So it becomes a, takes on a whole new level of meaning in that sort of context. So these, these connectors seems like a pretty straightforward thing, but actually this can be a real barrier to progress in the industry. We uh, conducted a survey last November that showed charger availability as the top concern regarding EV ownership. So starting from the policy perspective, what can be done to help break down this barrier? You know, the best thing that policymakers can do is drive standards forward. So uh, a number of states are trying to do this. They're working on doing this. One of them is the payment standard. So can I use any charger that I come up to? Uh, California has adopted a requirement where every public charger has to accept a physical credit card. That doesn't go into effect till 2023 though. So it's gonna be a while on that one. There's a, um, the Netherlands has a, a really interesting solution to that. Um, instead of requiring a credit card, right now you charge using an RFID card, right, or a mobile phone app. So in the Netherlands, what they've done is they've said, well, every, there's going to be a universal RFID card. The government will, will issue it. In Norway, it's issued by the, the Auto, Automobile Association. And anybody can use that RFID card at any charging station. So then you don't have to have this credit card requirement, but you still have this universal access. 
So policymakers, those are a couple of examples uh, that they can do. Um, I'll give you another one in New York, which has to do with the connectors. So New York is giving a discount to the public charging DC fast charging operators on the demand charges for the electricity they're buying. And they have said, we need open access to those chargers. And Tesla said, well, you know, we don't have open access. Um, the commission said, well, you, you can't have any of this discount unless, but they, let, they kept the door open. They said, look, if you install some chargers or some connectors at your station that are open, meaning the CCS and Shademo, then you can get access to this discount. So there's an example where the regulators have provided a nice financial incentive. They're not forcing anybody to do anything, but yet they're opening it up. So now in New York at these stations, you can anybody will be able to use them whether you're a Tesla driver or not. Tesla gets the benefits, Tesla drivers get the benefits, and everyone else does as well. Going back to um, the example you just mentioned in New Zealand, if the United States were to try to adopt this RFID card um, strategy, who do you think would be the driver for that or should be the driver? You mentioned like it could be the government, it could be the automobile manufacturers. If that were to happen in the US, how do you think that would play out? You, I would say you have three players there. Um, somebody has to do it, right? The government could do it. We have 50 states, that makes it tough. Uh, so you could do like the Automobile Association. Then you need the people who are the proponents. So you got the OEMs, you have all the EV proponents. That's where the regulators have to come in and they have to push for the acceptance of these cards. And because the third party is the EV service providers, the charging providers, and generally they do not want to accept this open card because they want to lock up their customers with their own membership so that their customers are looking for their own chargers instead of somebody else's. So I also want to talk about quickly before we move into publicly owned versus privately owned chargers, what role you see utilities playing in the rollout of charging infrastructure to make sure that it's the most usable for the most amount of consumers because D-Prime, we've traditionally focused on energy and utilities markets and trying to figure out how new technologies affect utilities specifically. So how do you see utilities being brought into this whole ecosystem and the role they play in ensuring that charging infrastructure is available to the most amount of people? So utilities can and should have a huge role. Uh, for one thing, they're one of the natural proponents. Obviously, they would like to see more sales on their system. And it benefits them. So there's, a, there's this really strong public policy argument that goes right to the economics, not an environmental thing. If you look at the lifetime of an EV, over that lifetime, if you had an ICE vehicle, you'd be spending $22,000 for gasoline. And if you buy an EV, first of all, you're only going to spend $11,000 for fuel because electricity is cheaper. Now, if you look at where those dollars flow, about $3,500 flow to the distribution utility. We're paying for the grid, the transmission and distribution grid. And if you're able to charge mostly off peak, then you won't have to invest anything more in the grid. So that's $3,500 that goes to all the ratepayers. So for every EV that's added to the system, $3,500, really a free money to those other customers who don't have, even have EVs. 
And so for, if you're a policymaker, it's like, well, here's a huge benefit. I need to help customers get access to this benefit. And the utilities have capabilities that where they can support this. They have patient capital, they have the expertise, they understand the market, they have a, a motivation to do this. Um, so most states have said, okay, we understand this, so we're gonna let utilities play a role here. And one of the things, one of the roles is to uh, serve underserved markets, places that are tough to serve, rural areas, multifamily dwellings, disadvantaged communities, and that sort of thing. So, uh, and, and the market is not serving those customers. There are models in the U.S. of both publicly owned charging networks, like the one Austin Energy has in Austin, and privately owned charging networks like Tesla has kind of uh, across the nation. So what are the successes and lessons of each of these models that you've seen? Well, one lesson which is unfortunate is that the, the models tend to be focused on the businesses and not on the consumer and the customer experience. Uh, Tesla is uh, partly an exception to that because they provide an outstanding customer experience. Um, but if you look at the business model underlying these, you, you'll see some interesting things. So in, in Tesla's case, that why do they do it to sell cars? If you look at um, one of the leading, the number one non-Tesla provider, they make their money by selling chargers, you know, and then they provide ongoing services as well. The um, third model is to provide just network and software and operating services. And those companies are really struggling. They're having a really hard time. Um, for a number of reasons. One of them is because people charge mainly at home and it costs less to charge at home. So utilization is low and then you've got high demand charges. And then the fourth model is you sell electricity or a utility. So you, you like Tesla, you have another reason to really uh, put the chargers out there and to operate the chargers. And you don't worry so much about whether you actually make money doing this. Now utilities shouldn't be out there competing with these other companies. And uh, they should be focusing on areas where these other companies are not serving, which turns out to be most of the market. Um, there are a couple of examples that uh, I would throw out there for real success stories on the utility side. One is in the, the disadvantaged communities, which are not served at all by these market players. Um, and some of the programs in California, up to upwards of 30 or 40% of the charging investment of the utilities is going into DACs. Um, another one is with transit agencies, which have said, you know, this is complicated. We want something simple um, where they have a choice, the utility can provide it or, or somebody else they're asking the utility to provide it um, because they've been offered a, a simpler service. And then, um, one of my favorite programs is a residential program, actually. Um, and Austin has a similar uh, one, but um, Excel Minnesota has a program where they'll provide you with a home charger. It's a smart charger, so it charges off peak and is controllable remotely and you can get data. And they take care of everything. You hit the easy button, they come in, they provide the charger, install it, operate it, give you the data, and charge you a monthly fee. It happens to be 17 bucks a month. Um, all in. And the thing is, it's not being subsidized by any other customers. So that customer is doing that. And the reason they can do it is because they can amortize that over a long period of time, whereas a private company would have to come in and be able to recover that in two to three years. 
So that $17 would then become $50 a month instead. So in, in the future, do you think those models are kind of still going to coexist in the, in, in the way they do now, or do you see more of a standardization as, uh, as EV adoption becomes more widespread? They'll definitely evolve, uh, and regulation is a key part of that, because in New York, utilities cannot provide chargers. Massachusetts, they cannot provide chargers. Most other states are allowing it. Um, so that will evolve and, and see where that goes. And then the markets, these, the private companies are, you know, frankly more nimble and um, they can respond to changes in the environment, changes in vehicles or technology or whatever. So anywhere where the market, where the, the economics will work, those companies are going to uh, be stronger and they're going to dominate those markets. The underserved markets where those those companies can't do it. That's where the utilities, because they have that interest in selling electricity, they still have an interest in providing that, even though it's a tough market to serve. And also, you know, it's good for public policy. We've talked a little bit about at-home charging. At the beginning, um, you're talking about the economics of it. Um, it costs less to charge your EV over the lifetime of the asset as it would to put gas in it. So for folks who are charging at home, they're really, um, you know, there are savings that can be incurred from owning the vehicle. So can you talk a little bit more specifically about the benefits of charging your EV at home? And then can you also talk about why it's different for folks who are living in multifamily dwellings because that is as you mentioned a few times it's a big issue allowing folks who live in multifamily dwellings to charge at home and take advantage of some of those off-peak prices that you mentioned um, some of the customers from Excel are benefiting from. Yeah so that's another you know big barrier to the market because people don't know what they're spending whether it's at home or even at, at the, these public stations because the pricing varies so much between station to station. So one of the, one of the things that um, people need to do is they need to have, to have some kind of understanding of what they're paying. And there are a number of ways to do that. One of them is just starting with the price of energy. So what does the kilowatt hour price mean if I have that using it for my vehicle? And there's this EPA thing and you can go through all sorts of numbers, but there's a really simple conversion that you can use, which is close enough. It's, and it's just multiply by 10. You know, Georgia Power has an off-peak price of two cents per kilowatt hour. If you multiply that by 10, 20 cents, that's the equivalent gasoline price. 20 cents a gallon of gasoline. You don't need much more convincing of a person at that point. Now, the average price of electricity is more like, a, you know, 12 cents. So that's, you know, um, about half the price of gas. Um, so that conversion is one key element. Another one is if you have some sort of service, Austin has this, uh, but Excel in Minnesota has it as well, um, where you can get have a subscription. So you, then you know what you're paying on a monthly basis. And in, in uh, Minnesota's case, it's 27 bucks a month, all the power you need for your EV, as long as it's off peak. Um, which is pretty generous. It's something like 8 p.m. until you know 10 a.m. in the morning. Um, so, and it's 27 bucks a month. So you know exactly what you're spending on fueling. In Austin's case, it's 30 bucks. So, 
So pretty similar there. Um, there's even a program in, in uh, Georgia where they have a time of use price where they give you 400 kilowatt hours a month from midnight to 6 a.m. for free. And that's enough to charge. The average EV runs about 350 kilowatt hours a month. So that's, that's less than that. So, so those are some, some ways of looking at the home charging economics. Um, and most utilities do have these off-peak rates. It's, it's not a rarity. Now, turning to the multifamily uh, dwellings. Now, the big issue there is the landlords have no incentive and terrible economics for putting something in. You know, the tenant signs a one-year lease, they ask for, you know, my daughter did this in her, her place. Very modern, high-end uh, facility. You know, their excuse was the electric system couldn't handle it, which um, was not true because it's only a seven kilowatt charger. We're not talking about a fast charger. So, um, so how do you do that? Well, one way is, you know, the utility can step in and then and they could provide it on, with a longer amortization. They could, you know, make it simple with this easy button approach. Um, most of what is happening today is those customers are charging either at work or at these DC fast chargers in, in public. Workplace is very a lot, although they tend to be very cost effective. Some are free. I know that Genentech uh, charges 18 cents a kilowatt hour, which using our conversion, $1.80 gasoline, which is a good price. Um, these DC fast chargers have a, a range, uh, generally higher than that. Uh, somewhere in the 30 to 40 cent range is typical. Uh, we've seen as high as 75 cents, so 750 a gallon for gases, you know, that, that, that'd be tough. Um, and there are, one of the issues there is do you price per minute, do you charge for parking, do you price per kilowatt hour? And different states have different rules there, and, and that's, you know, another barrier to adoption, because if I come up and it says I'm going to pay so much per minute, I really have no idea how much I'm paying you know, for my energy. I have no way to convert that uh, without a, a spreadsheet. Um, so about half the states are probably uh, requiring per kilowatt hour, and then at least I can convert it and see what that's looking like. But that's become the popular model is to have some, some DC fast chargers near these uh, multifamily dwellings that people can go to. Do you expect there to be federal regulation or um, federal policy to indicate how you should, how folks should price that, or do you think it'll be left up to the states to determine how to figure out the, the charging for some of those public chargers? There's a long history of states' rights in this space where the states have regulated utilities and electricity, retail electricity forever, so I think that's unlikely. But you do see sort of model rules coming up, um, and then other states tend to adopt those. And then they have coordination through things like the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, uh, say that one fast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, they're slowly moving in that direction. I think one of the biggest charge, one of the biggest challenges with charger availability is, and we talked about this a lot, and I've read some of the work you've done, and I know you talk about this, is charging availability, public charging availability isn't really a problem for people who just drive their car within the city every day. It more so becomes a problem when you try to take your car on road trips and probably um, when you're crossing states. 
So do you think that because this is left up to left into the hands of individual states, it will um, hinder EV adoption because of that issue of not being able to drive your car for much longer distances on road trips or things? Or do you think it probably won't be that big of a, an issue? It's already hindering. Because I mean, if you think about it, okay, I'm in California, I pay 30 cents kilowatt hour for my DC fast charging. Then I go to, I, I don't know the specific rules, but let's say I go to Utah and there, you know, pops up and says, you're going to pay 30 cents a minute. And I have no idea, you know, how that translates. And it's like, well, should I look for another charger that might be cheaper? Is this a good price compared to what I'm used to paying? Um, and people will suck it up because, you know, the, the practical reality is, well, I, I need to charge. There aren't that many around to, to, you know, to shop and things. But it's, you know, it, it's definitely, definitely a bit of a barrier. So um, as that gets standardized, that'll, that'll improve and you know, lower that barrier as well. To take that a little bit broader, one of the things we talked about on our last EV panel uh, our last EV call was uh, that electric vehicles uh, in their comparisons to in, uh, to ICE vehicles is that like it's just lots of things that okay so it's not this aspect you don't have to do you don't have to do this you do have to do this but defining what like what the benefit of an electric vehicle is for the owner outside of just the you know the broader ecological impact is I think penetrating a little bit less uh, the way Carl put it is you know th there needs to be a better uh, effort to to sell people on a lifestyle so I'm, I'm curious from from your perspective because you you come at this from such an economic standpoint is when you're creating the systems by which people are going to be living in an EV ecosystem how do you let people know what coming on what coming on board means for them some of the things that we've talked about right i mean uh, right. what is the economics of the, the fuel uh, but that's just one element as you point out and one thing we have not seen a lot of is sort of good calculators and they, you know it shouldn't be that hard you have a list of you know for an ice vehicle is the upfront cost is your annual maintenance is your fuel uh, your insurance whatever and then this is the same thing for the EV, and then you know this is where it comes out at the bottom so I mean, I, I talked about the uh, just the fuel element, um, and there's more on that one in the, an article in Power Magazine that I published with uh, Vice Chairman uh, Eccles of the Georgia Commission. Um, but again, a simple calculation of that. Um, then this lifestyle thing, you know, access to charging, uh, availability of charging, and in the public, because everybody knows they can charge at home, um, but uh, what does it take to charge at home is part of the question. What kind of charger do I need? Um, and then, you know, how can I find chargers in public? And that, that, that's growing. I mean, on Google Maps, you can see where chargers are located. Um, if you had a little bit more pressure from the policymakers, um, you would get more data. I mean, like gas stations have to post their prices, and, you know, openly in, in large number, you know, large letters. Um, you don't have those sort of requirements. But there is some discussion of that. So there, there's something on the um, display side. It's called, uh, it comes from the federal government, from NIST. They put together something called Handbook 44, which has 
suggested uh, requirements for public EV chargers. So it's not mandatory. And it has things like, you know, what kind of display has to be on there, um, what kind of uh, notification of the customer, what kind of accuracy of the meter built in. And uh, California is in the process of adopting a modified version of that. Uh, sometime this year was the plan, but the schedule seems to slip, uh, you know, every three months it slips another three months. Um, and then um, that's being taken up at the national level. And the way that works is there, there's a national committee that looks at that, makes a recommendation to the states, and then each state has to adopt it. So again, it's not a federal regulation, it's still a state one. So again, you know, coming back to standardization, people are comfortable with what they know if they can you know, get service or information or whatever that, that they expect, then they're, you know, they're much more comfortable with adopting an EV in this case. So there's a real opportunity there for, for someone, maybe like an app developer that can, that can create this, that, that calculator that you're talking about and pr just present all this information in a format that is, that is comfortable and familiar to people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just I'm just talking off the top of my head, but you know, Consumer Reports has vehicle, you know, uh, ratings. So as part of that, they could easily incorporate a, a calculator like that and say compare these four vehicles, uh, you know, for lifetime costs because people are already comparing vehicles on their on their website to on other features, right, to see what they want to buy. Chris, you mentioned the NIST recommendations. So they're just recommendations. California is um, has their own version of that. But have you seen states in general following these recommendations? Are states taking them seriously? Are there certain, um, is it based off region, certain, certain states are following them more seriously as opposed to others? What are you seeing in terms of actually taking into account those recommendations? Very little, frankly. Uh, it, it's kind of a next step. A lot of states are still at the very first step, which is to say, well, they are, are these EV charging companies utilities? And some states are still looking at that. Everyone who's looked at that has said, no, they're a service provider. We don't have to regulate them. So that's, that's good. But that, so that's kind of the first step of the process. Next step is kind of, you know, what's the utility role? Are we going to let the utilities move forward with the, these programs they're proposing? Um, and do we have kind of an overall policy for that? And, and, you know, we've got about a dozen states in that, that category and that's slowly expanding. So California is really the first one who's taken this up and said, okay, you know, we've got to regulate these, these uh, public stations because they're providing, they're selling something to the public. We regulate everything else that's sold to the public, you know, make sure it's accurate, you know, at a minimum. Um, so they're the first ones taking it up. And then, the industry actually is, is working to uh, try to, you know, take the lead on this um, because if we can get out there with what we would call reasonable standards that are easier to, to meet with the technology and get out there, you know, proactively with the states, that's our goal. Because, I mean, just to give you an example, there's one requirement in there that you have to be able to test the station locally. Okay, that's a, not a problem. But then you have to be able to print out on paper a receipt from the station with the results of the test. So it's like, you know, nobody's going to do that anymore. That was for, a, you know, a gas pump, right? So, um, 
that's one of the things that we're trying to get changed there. That does seem like a counterintuitive proposal. Um, but yeah, uh, well, Chris, I just, I want to thank you for talking, uh, talking about EV infrastructure with us. I, I, I learned a lot and uh, really appreciate it. That's great talking to you guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Yep, and, uh, love to have you back again in the future. Uh, Aaron, thanks for being on another uh, EV discussion. Uh, get every, every time you, every time you tell me we've got a new EV guest, I get excited because you're, you're hitting all the angles on, on, on this very important issue. Thank you, Dylan. It's always fun to talk EVs. Obviously, this isn't something that's going away and becoming more and more relevant to the research we do with energy companies and utilities. And Chris actually brought up something that I think we should be looking into, which is, you know, fleets and large fleets and mass transit, the electrification of buses and things like that. That's not really something that we've covered quite yet. We really just focus on um, like residential EV adoption, personal car ownership when we talk about EVs, but there's such a bigger conversation um, that needs to happen around electrification of mass transit and what it means to charge those things. So I feel like every time we have one of these conversations, we learn something new and another area to explore. It's always fun. And thank you, Chris, again, for you know, joining us today and opening our eyes to some of these challenges. That's a good point. I don't even know if we've even ever brought up the Volkswagen set settlement on this podcast. Um, there's, there's definitely, definitely an area we still, we still need to hit. So if, you, if you're familiar with, uh, with public EV fleets, hit us up. In the meantime, you can find our research and media at zprime.com. You can find us on social media at DY Lockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at zprime underscore research. And uh, we've got more Z Prime Now videos and guest contributor articles coming out all the time. So uh, make sure to make sure to keep keep up to date on our content. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.